Welcome to False Flag Weekly News, the weekly news show that's so dangerous that... Wait a minute. Muse, the drone's 50 miles out. The drone's 30 miles out. The drone's 10 miles out. Do the orders still stand? And Muse the cat whips his neck around and says, Meow, of course the orders still stand. Shoot that gosh darn drone down and get on with False Flag Weekly News, the only weekly news show so dangerous that it needs a watch cat to protect it. And speaking of watch cats, this week you all get to watch cat. Cat McGuire, that is. So, hey, welcome, Cat. How are you? Hey, hi. Glad to be here, Kevin. Hey, good to have you. So, yeah, the uh, the orders still stand, and the uh, disclaimers still stand, too. So let's go through our obligatory disclaimers here and shoot them down one by one. First, we question things here. Questions are good. Next, we uh, uh, warn you that we are very disturbing. And finally, our last disclaimer, we are neither mental nor medical health experts, so don't take a word of mental or medical health advice from us, unless your doctor agrees with us. So, the orders still stand, and they still stand after, what is it now, 22, 21 years. Uh, Norman Mineta, the former Secretary of Transportation under the Bush administration, famously exposed the fact that Dick Cheney had issued what could only have been a stand-down order on 9-11, as whatever it was was heading for the Pentagon. Uh, that young man kept saying, but sir, but sir, do the orders still stand? And Cheney whipped his neck around. Of course the orders still stand. Have you heard anything different? What kind of orders could those have been, Cat? Obviously a stand-down, because why else would he have to keep coming back? Oh, but sir, do the orders to protect the Pentagon still stand? He wouldn't have had to keep asking that. But if the orders were to let it hit the Pentagon then the young man would obviously keep coming back and wondering what the heck was going on. So uh, it's interesting how the mainstream media never, ever asked Norman Mineta about this, and whatever he said to the 9-11 Commission has been sealed. Yes, but he was a whistleblower in that we now know this uh, because he was the one who conveyed that information. But let's not make him out to be a total hero. He was a full member of the Revolving Door Club. After retirement, he sat on the board of Lockheed Martin, and he was later a vice chairman for Hill and Knowlton, the large propaganda firm. Yeah, he's a made man, like so many others. Uh, but he kind of blurted out the truth, probably by mistake. And so may God forgive his 10 billion sins uh, for, for having blurted out the truth by mistake for once. I mean, if, if God's that um, compassionate and merciful, uh, the rest of us uh, who haven't done quite as much evil as Norman Mineta uh, or been involved with the evil forces that he has, maybe uh, have a, a much better chance when we have to answer for our deeds, which might be happening real soon, the way things are going. We might all end up uh, facing Judgment Day all at once if this nuclear thing continues. We'll be getting to that a little bit later. Uh, but first, let's go to the disinformation censorship category. And uh, the big story lately has been this disinformation squad at Department of Homeland Security. You can't make this stuff up, Kat. Um, since when did Homeland Security decide uh, what what was disinformation and propaganda and what wasn't? Uh, it, it's really um, awful what they're doing, setting this uh, board up um, to look at disinformation. Um, the Department of Homeland Security was set up after 9-11 to specifically protect Americans against so-called terrorism. So by putting this group that actually has no authority within the Department of Homeland Security, isn't that like equating disinformation with terrorism? And you know things are bad when even the Washington Post says that their announcement about this group was botched and ham-fisted. 
And I love how people have pointed out that the disinformation uh, um, governance board, DGB, it sounds like a Soviet name. Um, but if you go to their website, what they're saying is we need to build trust because they saw that there was so much confusion about the group, its role, its activities. So trust, trust, trust. So what did they do to rectify the confusion and build trust? Secretary, um, ahead of Homeland Security Mayorkas, um, has brought in an existing oversight group that's called the Homeland Security Advisory Council. Well, who's that? Okay, get this. Michael Chertoff and Jamie Gorlick, who was a member of the 9-11 Commission report. But it, that's not all of it. This new board is also going to be co-chaired by two Department of Homeland Security departments. One, the Office of Policy, run by Robert Silvers, and the Office of General Counsel, run by Jonathan Mayer. So what we have is the top six people running this disinformation board are Mayorkas, Janowitz, Chertoff, Gorlick, Silvers, and Meyer. Guess which demographic they all six are from? Why doesn't the government just make ADL the official disinformation board and be done with it? Yeah, Zionist cover-up criminals, uh, 9-11 criminals. It's uh, quite astounding. And their their official uh, job description is they're tasked with countering the spread of false narratives. Wow. 9-11 cover-up criminals who were supposed to be countering the spread of false narratives. Well, they're experts in the spread of false narratives, I guess. But, yeah, it's it's completely uh, over-the-top and utterly insane. Uh, and this this move towards a controlled information environment, controlled by the world's most evil serial liars, uh, continues as the uh, the pushback against Elon Musk at Twitter is getting really intense. Uh, this next slide shows us v, Vijaya Gade, or however you pronounce her name, who earns $17 million a year censoring people on Twitter, might be fired. And she, she apparently broke down crying while addressing colleagues this week about the future of Twitter. And uh, she whimpered and cried about the horrible sexism involved of possibly uh, seeing this, you know, her $17 million uh, job go up in smoke. So, I mean, is, is this a terrible tragedy, Kat, that the, the poor Twitter censor is going to lose a $17 million a year job? And be called um, um, these bad names. So, so she has to hurl her own bad names and say um, that they're misogynist. That's why they're going after her. No, she deliberately censored the New York Post from reporting about Hunter Biden's laptop and all of that shady business in the run-up to the 2020 elections. And polls show that one in five voters would have never voted for Biden had they been aware of how corrupt he and his family would. That alone could have shifted the election to Trump. You know, isn't there some kind of federal law to keep people like this woman from uh, meddling in our elections? Well, in defense of Vijaya Gaddy, uh, apparently she got all of her information from true disinformation experts, like all those CIA and military-type disinformation experts. Uh, that was it 60 or so uh, CIA people that signed that statement that the intelligence community finds that the Hunter Biden laptop story appears to be a classic case of Russian disinformation. And so she ate that up and censored it from Twitter. And now, of course, it's even the New York Times admits that the laptop story turns out to be true. I'm actually kind of shocked that Hunter just happened to leave his laptop and some 
repairman just happened to find it. That sounds kind of shady to me, but it turns out it looks like it's true. And so uh, she's she's out of her $17 million job stopping politically embarrassing stories from popping up. And uh, it's uh, it's all getting crazier by the moment, as we see in the next story. Oh, my goodness. This one is getting to the point that the mark of the beast is, is going to be allowing you to buy and sell. Uh, the PayPal Indie Media Wipeout story here by Matt Tybee uh, tells us that the Consortium News, which is Robert Perry's kind of left anti-war outlet, is being booted off of uh, PayPal. And they're threatening to steal the money that's in their account. Uh, the same is happening to other outlets as well, including Mint Press, uh, where Alan McLeod of Mint Press uh, says the same thing. They're going to try to steal their money. So this is kind of what happened to me with uh, GoFundMe back when I was using their services. They stole over $1,000 of False Flag Weekly News money and uh, and booted us off the platform. So this censorship by making it impossible to buy and sell or to use use money and make a living is really getting completely out of control. And I mean, what, what are people going to do when they can't make a living mouthing off anymore? Well, what little money they have left, they're probably going to use to buy automatic weapons. What else can you do? Well, what GoFundMe did to you pales compared to what they did to the um, Canadian convoy. Um, they froze about $10 million of their donations. And this whole controlling speech through confiscation is just the high-tech version of civil forfeiture, where the police can take your cash or property if you are suspected of a crime. Now, what we have to really look at is last year, guess who went into partnership mm-hmm. with PayPal? On July the 26th, ADL. the ADL. Yeah. The ADL. And I bet this confiscation, confiscation tactic was ADL's idea because uh, make sure to always get the Benjamins. Um, and also, let's be aware that ADL has a long history of spying on Americans. So surely it was on ADL's advice that PayPal uh, decided to share their intel with policy, quote, policymakers and law enforcement, um, as if speech has to be monitored in the same way financial illegalities like drug trading and human trafficking are. So there is a reason that you want to monitor this, but not for speech. And, of course, once they get the central bank-controlled currencies where the currency itself uh, tells you what you are and are not allowed to do with it, then they'll, they'll uh, really have the mark of the beast on us. So it's uh, it's getting out of control. So enjoy supporting False Flag Weekly News while you still can. And please do contribute to our fundraiser. Fundraiser still supports free speech. And you can also subscribe to my Substack, which still supports free speech. There's a little bit of free speech left out there if you know where to look for it. Uh, but hey, uh, the free speech about political matters that could swing elections apparently is now totally censorable. We're getting back to the Hunter Biden laptop story. And there was a great story here on this guy, John Paul Mac Isaac, who had a little Mac repair shop that Hunter Biden apparently in some kind of hungover, you know, cocaine hangover stupor staggered down there and dumped the laptop for repairs and never came back. So this guy gave a copy to the FBI in December 2019, and then nothing happened. So eight months later, he gave Rudy Giuliani a copy, and the New York Post then published some of it. And then we were told that it was all Russian disinformation, nothing to see here, folks, move along. And it was censored from social media, and it didn't end up impacting the election the way it otherwise might have. So they did swing a presidential election through this censorship of this individual. And yeah, I'm shocked, Kat. It sure, sure looks like this story is true because comparing 
you know, both sides, anybody who wants to challenge the story and claim that there's more to it than there appears, they have the resources to do that. And if, if there was a way to challenge this successfully, they would have done it. So I actually believe this completely insane story that, uh, this laptop repairman just happened to get a hold of, of, uh, Hunter Biden's laptop just because the alternatives have essentially dried up. Yeah, I totally believe it. And hopefully during the lawsuit's discovery phase, um, it will become uh, legally exposed what Hunter Biden had on his laptop and uh, his crimes might see the light of day, if not lead to more of his prosecution, because I think the investigation they're doing on his tax, uh, uh, not paying his taxes and money laundering. I don't think that investigation is going to bring any light that this one might well. And if he were working for the Russians, um, why didn't uh, Schiff or someone put him on trial for treason? The fact that they didn't shows that there's no there there. Well, Kat, the proof, though, that he's working for the Russians is that Hunter's laptop keeps talking about the 10 percent going to the big guy who can only be Vladimir Putin. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and if you believe that, uh, we have a Brooklyn Bridge. OK, moving on to the next story. 2000 Mules film premiere. Uh, Dennis D'Souza, the noted right-wing filmmaker, has this new film that's endorsed by Kat and by Donald Trump. So, Kat, you and, and, and your friend Don are both endorsing this film, which I haven't seen yet. I think it's just coming out. So why are we endorsing, or why are you endorsing this film? Donald Trump is not my friend, and I find it so unfortunate <laughs> that they kidding. choose to have his picture there. <laughs> but what I do have to say is, in my opinion, this film can do for the 2020 stolen election what Oliver Stone's movie, JFK, did for the Kennedy assassination investigation. And as lawsuits come forward to prove that the 2020 election was a vast criminal operation, this documentary is going to have to be Exhibit A, because I think if it's shown in a fair court of law, um, a jury will see that just from this film alone, that um, it will be a total win for election integrity. Everybody, it's uh, going to be, it's out in theaters. Well, I, I don't think now. I saw well, it in the movie theater. So, so how do you know? Oh, you already saw it. Okay. I already saw it. Yeah, it was cool. fabulous. I saw it in the movie theater, but the online premiere, everybody, is tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. Please go to 2000mules.com. That's um, 2000mules.com. You really have to see it. It's a slam dunk film that makes the, the, the theft almost unassailably obvious. Okay. And, the, and those 2,000 mules are referring to people who were carrying uh, these uh, collections of ballots to go uh, stuff. And, of course, yeah, I'll, I'll, I saw the, the, the uh, trailer, and it was pretty good and looked interesting. So I will check it out. And whether or not it proves the election was stolen, I will hold off and watch it first and decide. And maybe uh, our viewers should do that, too. So okay, yes. in the next next uh, round here, we're moving on to the culture wars. Of course, all of this election and stuff is about the culture wars in part. And uh, the culture wars stories begin with this meta story about the uh, meta giving away its AI and the usual suspects pushing the Great Reset and posthumanism are probably very happy that this uh, talking AI is on the loose. However, some of the politically correct uh, exponents of AI are worried that these talking AIs, quote unquote, as the story says, 
have deep flaws. They parrot misinformation, prejudice, and toxic language. They're not politically correct. So how can we program these AIs to be politically correct? That is the whole issue here. I don't know, Kat. I think the whole issue is should we even unleash AI in the first place? What do you think? Exactly. Yeah. It's like that whole pandemic agreement that um, World um, Health Organization is trying to put out. Not, you know, it should it have this or that, but should we even have it? And that's the same thing with these AI, uh, these AI languaging models. Um, I, I don't know if we're going to get around them. They're, they're here. Um, they love their big new toys, but these language models are very expensive. And so far, only big, rich, rich, uh, tech companies have been able to work with them and they do it privately. So on the one hand, oh, look what Facebook, oh, excuse me, Meta. I hate that name. It's like, calling word processing programs word. It, it's so confusing. But meta is a thing unto itself, but whatever. It's the new name for Facebook. But in any event, Meta has released their AI language model that they built based on the original pioneering model. So uh, they're saying it's open source. Well, is it truly open? Um, it's a conditional release, actually, because it's only on request. And even... Um, People who get it, there are a few research labs that actually have the kind of infrastructure necessarily to um, to explore Meta's even pint-sized version. They have a much smaller version of many of the AI language programs that others are using. And um, in terms of deciding which corrections need to be built into it, here we again, we get the dangers of uh, generating propaganda or corrective language that conforms to wokeism. And so, um, you know, rather than serve as a petri dish for improving Meta's AI languaging model, um, will these uh, free versions just be a way for Meta to capture the best technological innovations for free and leave behind anti-Big Brother social corrections that Meta just doesn't want to include in their woke analysis? Well, I suppose people... If it's, if it's an open source program, maybe people could get their hands on it and try to program it to be even more politically incorrect, which might be kind of a, a fun hack for some of those uh, troublemakers. Speaking of those young kind of right wing reactionary troublemakers, we had a really good profile piece here by James Hogue or Pogue rather. I'm sorry. In I know James Hogue is a friend of mine from Vermont. James Pogue writes for Vanity Fair and Harper's and places like that. And here's his article where he infiltrates the National Conservatism Conference, which has been taken over by the gasp, the new right, otherwise known as the post-left. But wait a minute, that's kind of you and me, Kat, the post-left. And reading this, I was heartened because there are all of these young people, and I don't agree with a lot of them, but what we all agree on is that things are heading for techno-dystopia with crap like this so-called meta-AI, and uh, and we need to try to get back to the, the human. And that's, called, that's, I guess, reactionary. That's what these progressives think, and we'll get to that, that discussion in a few moments with our discussion of Tom Hartman's article. But I thought this was great. The young people are totally resonating with with the, the post-left analysis of things. So so as I was telling uh, my radio guests last night, you know, those of us who are getting up in years might actually live long enough to be cool again. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm a, a grassroots um, activist in the freedom movement, and I see this new right movement as far more moneyed and intellectual. But as a leftist who left the left, and I'm not really right, 
Um, what I found interesting was comparing this new right with the new left from the 60s. So the new left broke away from the old left back in the 60s because the old left was basically the Communist Party and it was powerless and thoroughly discredited. And the liberals back in the 60s were too status quo. They wouldn't take on more controversial issues like civil rights and race or Vietnam and anti-war. Not, not to mention the JFK assassination. But, um, Right. Wouldn't still aren't touching it. Nobody's hardly touching that. But um, this new right seems likewise to have a breakaway component and a more radical positioning. They're breaking away from conservative Republicans, especially the rhinos, who are in many ways are powerless and discredited. But they also want to move beyond the conservative status quo by taking on more radical stances of traditional values. Um, they're into creating alternative communities, supporting self-expression, individual freedom, and finding authentic meaning in a rapidly changing world. So I thought that was uh, an interesting juxtaposition between new left and new right. And I was also very glad to see uh, JT Vance is highlighted and that he's not just a one-dimensional Trumper. And I'm also glad that uh, this past week he won the Ohio primary, and I hope he wins the Senate seat. Okay, well, interesting things afoot in the political realm, and including this next story. Uh, and I, I think this, these new right people probably have folks on both sides of this abortion issue that's back in the headlines, uh, wiping out the Ukraine the way the Ukraine issue wiped out COVID. Uh, it's funny how things are moving faster and faster here as the, the so-called left, which is really just the billionaire establishment mouthpieces, get all hysterical and emotional about one thing after another, and then they suck up all the oxygen in the room. Well, this is what they're sucking up the oxygen with now. And so, Kat, my first reaction to the whole abortion issue is that, you know, this is a good way to divide and conquer the ordinary folks, right? That's the first reaction. The second reaction, though, is honestly, I think the, the anti-abortion people have a better argument on this. Uh, and, uh, that's, we, we'll get to the New York Times uh, op-ed, uh, by Ross Duhat on the anti-abortion argument. Um, in any case, the media is obviously mostly pro-abortion rights as this photo of the pro-abortion rights protest from the Supreme Court illustrating this news report suggests. So anyway, we're, uh, we're still in interesting times, I guess, although some of us have got a little tired of this particular argument. On the other hand, with uh, what is it like half a million plus uh, if you're an, an anti-abortion person, half a million plus babies are being murdered every year. Uh, no wonder they're upset about it. Well, um, I agree with you about the divide and conquer. And I also had another um, first thought. Why this leak? Why now? It's extremely rare for a Supreme Court decision to be leaked. And I suspect the Democrats leaked it to get mm -hmm. the headlines um, away from all of their failures. I mean, nothing yeah. can be more foolproof than getting people all hysterical uh, once again over the abortion issue. Um, but maybe this tidbit will shed some light on the leak. Um, on May 17th, this coming May 17th in Washington, there's going to be an event called the Jewish Rally for Abortion Justice. It's being put on by the National Council of Jewish Women. So how did they know to have their website registered and built for this rally two weeks before the Roe v. Wade mm. news even got leaked? <laughs> so uh, makes you wonder. But I have one more point to make, and that is... I don't know how these pro-choice liberals um, are going to be able to promote their cause. They're going to have a very hard time because how can they fight 
for a woman's right to choose if their Supreme Court gal, Katanji, I am not a biologist, Jackson, doesn't even know what a woman is. Maybe they better change their battle cry to a birthing person's right to choose. <laughs> a birthing person's right to choose. There you go. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so, so first we'll, we'll, we'll look at a couple of, uh, like pro, pro abortion rights and then, uh, anti-abortion pieces here. First one is a, a rabid pro abortion rights piece from Tom Hartman, who identifies abortion rights with quote unquote progress. And he kind of suggests that, you know, everybody who doesn't believe in progress anymore is a wealthy, straight, white male reactionary, uh, and, he, he writes, the history of democracy moves forward and then is jerked back by reactionary forces and moves forward again. It's been going that way since ancient Greece. Well, this is a meta-narrative of the kind that Leotard totally blew up uh, 30 years ago, the meta-narrative of progress. And those of us who don't believe it, whether we're sort of traditionalist religious people like me or whether we're postmodernists, uh, have to totally don't relate to this kind of progressive Religion. It's a fundamentalist religion, the religion of progress. And Hartman is a true believer, and he looks like he wants to declare those who disagree with him as heretics. And there are a lot of people like that out there. Well, personally, I found this very hard to read. I could not tolerate Hartman's ad hominems and hyperbole, like calling Trump a strong-armed dictator. I mean, it's just stupid. The Democrats is extreme march towards totalitarianism makes blowhards like Trump look like choir boys. Um, here's um, another of uh, example of Hartman's uh, cockeyed understanding. He said Alito's interpretation of privacy will allow the government to intrude in our most personal affairs. So what do you call contact tracing and vaccine mandates? Talk about undermining privacy. The double standards and lack of self-awareness are just totally tone deaf. Absolutely. If we have a right to privacy, just about everything the government does, not to mention the corporations, is totally unconstitutional, right? I mean, just by having to report your income on income tax forms, Every penny that goes through your hands is the government's business. And theoretically, you have to be able to prove where every single penny that came into your hands came from and by implication where it went to because that's somebody else's income. Talk about destroying your right to privacy. I mean, come on, right to privacy? What a joke. And if there was a right to privacy, why wouldn't it apply to the unborn child who has the right to be private in the womb. I mean, this idea that, as Hartman says, there's the right to privacy, according to Roe v. Wade, is implied in the first, third, fourth, fifth, ninth, and 14th amendments. What? And why would you apply this? I mean, it's insane. This is the most insane Supreme Court ruling. Of course, there are probably others, too. But how could anybody honestly argue this? Uh, I guess you have to be sort of rabid and fundamentalist in your belief in progress, like Tom Hartman. So let, let's let's look at another opinion piece here. Ross Duhat uh, at the New York Times offers the case against abortion. And I find that a lot more convincing. It's laid out dispassionately, unlike Hartman's. It's totally rational, unlike Hartman's. And it makes a, a very strong point that there's basically a core premise in the whole legal system that human beings must be protected from lethal violence. And yet here's an exception. So the burden of proof is on those who want to make an exception, say that the violence against an unborn baby in abortion uh, actually is okay. So, yeah, go ahead. Let's hear the case. Why is it okay? I was just listening to a, a public radio debate on this yesterday, and the pro-abortion rights person was asked this, and the, there's no answer. 
None. So I'm still waiting to hear the answer. Why do we have to make an exception here? Well, I agree with you about how um, his piece was uh, so much better than the Hartman's unhinged article. And I um, appreciate the civility of it, um, of acknowledging the other side. I personally struggle with this issue, and I'm not sure where I stand. But I guess if push comes to shove, I'd probably land on the same side as I do with vaccines. My body, my choice. But that said, I do believe that whoever is opposed to abortion has an obligation to put their money where their mouth is. These high-minded principles are easy to espouse. But in my opinion, everyone who opposes abortion should step up and physically, financially, and emotionally care for at least one unwanted, unaborted child until that child is 18. Well, that's a, that's an interesting challenge, Kat. And, and it kind of relates to our next story, which is this, uh, this pro-abortion rights piece from Time, uh, looking at the supposed grim preview that other, that these pro-life nations offer. And it didn't mention some of the ones that I know, but, uh, for instance, in Morocco, uh, I think Morocco was much better off when there were fewer abortions and just, you, the cold culture in Morocco was much saner. And now that it's become more westernized, there are apparently more abortions happening. Uh, although the uh, law was changed a while back, uh, originally the Moroccan law was abortion was only permissible if the health of the mother was in danger. And now it's been reformed to allow abortion in cases of incest, rape and birth defects. So that's the way it stands in Morocco. However, in the Islamic world, there are vastly fewer abortions, vastly fewer than in the Western world and most other non-Muslim uh, countries. Uh, just like there's less suicide, there's less crime, there's less violent crime, there's less drug addiction, there's less alcohol use, and on and on and on. All of these negative social indicators are considerably lower across the board in Muslim countries. And I think rather than saying, oh, let's let everybody just fornicate like crazy and create lots of babies, and then either we murder the babies or we force people who weren't responsible for starting the babies to take care of them, as you're suggesting, Kat, I think we obviously have to do what humans have done throughout all of history and massively discourage procreative sex out of wedlock and make the family the basis of social life, which is based on procreation. And obviously we need a religious basis for that. So let's be religious. Uh, I mean, that's the simple, obvious answer that underlies the premises of most of the pro-life people. And I think it's right. Um, well, I agree, um, but I don't know if it, and I support a, a spiritual understanding, but I don't know if it, um, it would be, should be predicated on that. Um, um, but I do appreciate one thing that the pro-choice proponents point out is that, um, the pro-life side often ignores or underestimates the reality of male violence, specifically rape. I believe any woman who is ever raped should be allowed to get an abortion if she wants. Um, but it's interesting. I, as I was researching this, um, I came across the fact that the statistics show that less than 1% of women who get abortions do so because of rape. So that study was from 2005, but still. Um, the other thing that this article said that I really disagree with um, it said, quote, by curtailing abortion access, the U.S. is joining Poland, Hungary, Brazil, Russia, China in moving ever rightward towards authoritarianism. The ipso facto correlation between abortions and democracy is hogwash. 
Uh, with the Democrats, the U.S. is in the middle of the most severe authoritarian eras ever encountered um, in this country. The abortion factor has nothing to do with that. So, so much for democracy correlated to abortions. Oh, yeah. And they didn't mention that actually Russia has a pretty high abortion rate, last I heard. So, yeah, they're totally selective cherry picking to support their idiotic propaganda, as usual in the mainstream media. Uh, and speaking of idiotic propaganda and cherry-picked facts to support it, how about the Ukraine narrative? We, it took us a half an hour to get to Ukraine this week. Uh, but that's, of course, the big story because we'll be lucky if we broadcast False Flag Weekly News next week, the way things are going here. Um, well, the Pope has finally said something sensible about Ukraine. We reported on him doing stupid things and waving Ukrainian flags a few weeks ago. But now let's give him credit where credit is due. Uh, the mainstream media and here the uh, Daily Zio Beast is calling him a conspiracy theorist because he said, quote, the real scandal of Putin's war is, quote, NATO barking at Russia's door. Um, yeah, that's pretty much right. Uh, the dog, rabid dog is barking at your door and you step outside and shoot him. It's maybe not a nice thing to do, but, you know, what, what are you going to do? Um, yeah, he made a lot of comments that were dead on, but there was contradictions too. Um, so on the one hand, he's saying that Putin is justified to go against NATO, but on the other hand, he's saying Putin must be stopped as the aggressor. So that was really confusing. I think a lot might have to do with probably even how the article was written and framed um, by uh, this Daily Beast, um, who certainly has their own agenda calling half the stuff um, conspiracy theories. Um, I'm glad they left in there, though, about May 9th. They can, like, joke about it as a conspiracy theory. But um, I've heard other people say that May 9th is going to be a pivotal day because that's uh, Russians' uh, World War II Liberation Day. So here we have the Pope and other people saying it's going to be a key day for the war. So that's this we Monday. shall see. Yeah, coming up on Monday. And one of the things that might happen Monday in this gigantic uh, victory, World War II victory parade they have in Moscow is they may be parading Canadian General Trevor Cadier, who was captured uh, while trying to escape from the Azovstal plant uh, in Mariupol. And according to this story, this General Trevor Cadier, the Canadian general, uh, NATO official or NATO officer, was actually managing the biolab number one in Ukraine, where 18 people worked with deadly viruses. So will they uh, be parading him down the streets of Moscow uh, mm -hmm. on Victory Day on Monday? Uh, stay tuned and find out. Yeah. Well, this general actually wasn't officially with NATO. He had quit the Canadian forces and went to the Ukraine. Yeah, just a cover story. A mercenary. Yeah, probably, because there's no way somebody at his high level uh, could have gone to the Ukraine without any kind of approval from on high. So this is really huge. Um, but what's interesting is um, I was listening to Gonzalo Lira, and he raised some uh, very uh, clever thoughts. Um, if you remember that um, American general, Roger Cloutier, or Cloutier um, who supposedly disappeared, well, Gonzalo Lira speculates that um, the person who they're really after in that uh, basement of the metallurgical uh, plant in Maripol, where um, holed up with all the Azov Nazis, um, is um, this uh, American general, Roger Cloutier, and that uh, he's really in charge. And I saw elsewhere that um, these are rumors who really knows that at least 10 or so top ranking U.S. military are in Kiev running the show.
So who knows who's really there, but I would not discount NATO and the U.S.'s huge involvement in all of it, proxy or otherwise. Well, you know, Kat, I wonder if NATO and the U.S. have sent some of their specialists in social media censorship to Kiev, because if we look at our next slide, the Ukraine-Nazi stormtroopers are already hunting down social media thought criminals, kicking in doors because they don't like your tweet. You know, that's probably the next step here as well. Maybe they're just trying it out in Ukraine before they bring it home. Well, you know, all sides do that. War is war. Um, the, anybody who's a traitor is going to get caught down. The big difference is, is how they're treating these uh, collaborators. Um, are the Nazis giving them a fair trial? Is there torture? Um, from what I've seen on social media, I don't know if I would trust these as of so-called Nazis um, um, because they seem really barbarous. I actually saw one grizzly cannibal video of a Nazi grilling and then eating the meat off the bone of a dead Russian soldier. Well, he now, thought it was a Russian soldier, but the tank that he took it from, it turns out it was probably a Ukrainian tank. So uh, he may oh, have been eating his friend. Ouroboros style. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And the video could have even been doctored to make them look all macho or whatever. But in any event, um, I'd like to see um, more fair-minded coverage in the mainstream media um, because Kudos goes to Russians' um, military restraint and their takeover of the Ukraine. Unlike what the West does in Iraq and everywhere of raping and pillaging, um, the Russian military has actually been um, measured and shown restraint. So you're not going to see them um, cannibal style uh, eating their enemies and thinking they're even their own. That's true. Well, the Russians are showing restraint, but this week the American side stopped showing restraint as it went completely nuts by crowing about the American participation in the sinking of the flagship Moskva, as well as American participation in murdering Russian generals. So the Americans are bragging that we're killing your generals, we're sinking your ships, uh, nya, 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 what are you going to do about it? And this article from Responsible Statecraft about the horrible dangers of pushing the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine seems more relevant than ever. It came out right before these two developments this week. And so things are looking pretty grim, aren't they, Kat? I don't put any stock in what this author says. I think he's clueless. He's been listening to the West's mainstream lies too long. The mainstream news uh, media on Ukraine is every bit as mendacious as all the COVID pandemic we, news we have gotten over the past two years. This guy's been suckered. For example, he said that um, the Russians are performing a miserable performance in the Ukraine. Oh, come on. Yeah. The Russians have total military supremacy over NATO and the U.S. They they own that. And as, as we'll see in um, um, our uh, next story, the economic supremacy as well. The only thing that the U.S. has to some mod come is um, uh, PR supremacy, control over the um, information, misinformation and disinformation. But Russia is winning this war. But in defense of this article, though, by saying that, oh, Russia's, or Russia's losing because they haven't taken over the entire Ukraine. However, uh, they'll never give up the Donbass and they'll certainly, uh, you know, ne never uh, give, uh, give up the Crimea. And so therefore we need to work out something, you know, and call it'll be a huge victory for us when we let Russia have the Donbass and the Crimea. So that's actually, you know, it, that's a way for the West to save face if they buy into that narrative. So that's not such a bad thing. And other things about this article that weren't really so bad was it pointed out 
that the U.S. turning this into an obvious U.S.-NATO proxy war against Russia is going to inflame the Russian people and make the Russians fight that much harder, which is true. Uh, so, and it cited Lavrov this week going on TV and saying that by supplying Ukraine with heavy weaponry, NATO is declaring a proxy war on Russia. Uh, it cited Lloyd Austin saying that the U.S. wants to see Russia weakened. Uh, these things are, as this article correctly points out, galvanizing the Russian people and making Russian uh, victory not only more assured, but it's going to be a stronger victory. They're going to take more territory because of this kind of idiocy. Uh, so I, I think it, this article is a mixed bag, but as mainstream propaganda goes, it was not as stupid and uh, awful as some of the, as almost all of the other stuff we're reading. Uh, well, I didn't have much patience for it. I mean, yeah, I, and I yeah. don't think it makes sense for um, Putin to just do um, a half halfway job. Take the country over, put in your own puppet and, and leave it at that because any um, leave behinds become gladios. Uh, it'll, that's what they're going to do to Ukraine. If you have any leave behind options there. Yeah, I don't know. I think if they divided up at the Dnieper, Dnieper River, and so you have Ukrainian speakers on the west and uh, primarily Russian speakers and reasonable people on the east, you know, then all the Galicia, uh Ukro-Nazis are wherever they're on the west, and they'll probably be sucked in by Poland, and uh, Ukraine really won't be a problem anymore. But who knows? Uh, anyway, in the next story, we find that Europe is quietly surrendering to Russia. They're barking loud, but the caravan full of natural gas moves on from Russia to Europe. Ten EU countries are going along with Putin's plan. Uh, that is, they're sneakily managing to pay in ruble, and that's why the ruble is so high. Okay, uh, and, and none of this, you're not allowed to admit this stuff in the mainstream. And you're right, Kat, the mainstream coverage is all, you know, varies from bad to hideous. Uh, so that's why you have to read stuff like 21st Century Wire to get this news. Although, actually, um, I uh, saw that maybe it's no longer true that EU is going to crack down and not let any EU countries um, buy quietly or otherwise rubles. But who cares? Russia is making money hand over fist. The ruble has never been higher. Almost no one is going along with the U.S. sanctions against Russia. Over 130 countries are not doing the sanctions and presumably are trading rubles for gas because the ruble's so high. And another really important thing to realize is that the West outright stole $300 billion from the Russian government as part of sanctions activities. The money is frozen, just like all the Russian billionaire yachts and, and properties. It's probably the biggest theft in world history. But the important thing from it is is not so much the egregiousness of the theft, but the fact that the Western financial system has lost the world's trust and the world is abandoning us. We're shooting ourselves in the foot with this Ukraine war. So Russia is outmaneuvering us economically and on the battlefield. And there is no way the West is going to be able to prolong the war like we keep hearing that they're going to do. I think this Ukraine war will be the downfall of the American economy. And that's the plan. Destroy us so they can build back better. So the Ukraine war, the, the real enemy is they're, they're fighting us, the American people, using the economics and just um, bankrupting us with all the money they're just throwing at the Ukrainians. Half of it, the arms weapon they buy, they'll probably resell somewhere else and make billions on it. Um, so we're the ones who are caught up in our in this PR um, understanding of the war pro-Ukraine, which is it just suicidal for us. 
Well, it sounds like the former president of the Dominican Republic, Orlando Bosch, who famously wrote that the biggest victims of the American military industrial complex and the war machine are actually the American people themselves who are being robbed blind. And the way things are going, it could turn out that way. In the next story, we see that the propagandists are really ratcheting it up now as they are telling us that the Russians are a bunch of evil anti-Semites. Uh, the Daily Zio-Beast, once again, we love quoting that uh, wonderful rag, uh, tells us, that the Kremlin's favorite propaganda mouthpieces want you to disregard the Holocaust and forget all about the six million Jews who died in Nazi concentration camps. That's the first sentence of this article. Um, oh, those evil Russians. They want you to stop watching reruns of Schindler's List and, and reading Raised by Wolves Holocaust survivor memoirs and, and stop visiting Holocaust museums. The Russians are heretics. They're the enemy of Russian civilization. Oh, my goodness. Uh, they're, they're getting desperate. Um, I agree. And we have to remember, like science, history is not settled. Russia suffered brutally at the hands of Nazis in World War II and have their own interpretation of history. Rather than silence it, we should all learn and listen to better understand their side of it, what their people endured. This diversity is forever being lauded, but when it comes to the diversity of history and different experiences, all of a sudden it's swiftly denounced for a uh, a unilateral, um, single, uh, one understanding of what happened in World War II. And then this article uh, calls Lavrov's uh, remarks about Hitler being Jewish hideously anti-Semitic. Wait a minute, though. Last I checked, the state of research on that question was leaning towards the truth of that, that Hitler probably was the illegitimate son of uh, a wealthy Jewish man who then paid for his upbringing uh, as hush money. So uh, maybe it's hideously anti-Semitic to tell the truth these days. Yeah, yeah, I've read that same stuff too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there is a debate. It's a legitimate debate. And Lavrov's position, whatever you want to call it, is, is not particularly fringe or marginal. I mean, so uh, the, the truth is anti-Semitic. And speaking of the truth being anti-Semitic, how about this next story from Ron Unz over at Unz.com? Did Jews dominate the U.S. due to ethnic nepotism was my headline here, uh, because you have to read halfway through the article to get to this. But this is pretty interesting. A thousand percent uh, advantage. Uh, the Jewish whites have a thousand percent advantage over non-Jewish whites in getting admitted to the Ivy League. A thousand percent. Wow. Like 30 percent is a sign of uh, horrific discrimination. So a thousand percent is kind of unheard of. And this gives the lie to the whole notion that uh, Jews dominate in these high positions purely because of ability. There's probably some truth to that. Jewish culture is very pro-education, which is wonderful. Uh, there may be a slight genetic edge as well. However, uh, this sort of study shows that it's ethnic nepotism, the fact that all of the admissions officers in the Ivy League pretty much are all now Jewish and they're picking Jewish applicants uh, disproportionately is the real reason for Jewish success. That is, the Jewish community has lots of good things and other things that may be good from within it, but not so good from without it. And that includes extreme ethnocentrism. And let's face it, this is the truth. And say it's anti-Semitic. So the truth, once again, is anti-Semitic. Yeah, it's amazing how much in this uh, lawsuit that's really um, Asians suing um, Harvard um, that, that Ron Unz was able to study the statistics himself and find out the truth of uh, Jewish perfidy in gaming the system. Um, the real reason Ivy League admittance is so important is because schools are the primary feeder system to the nation's leadership um, in business, government, wherever um, the top 
brass come from these Ivy League schools. There are eight Ivy League schools and get a load of this. Seven of them now have Jewish presidents. So these embarrassing statistics that there's a, a quote of thumb on the scale and that Jews have been um, um, gaining the system, um, how are they going to keep those quiet? So what um, happened was that um, they gained the system once again by changing the definition of what is Jewish. Um, they used to count Jewish as all Jews, but now they've changed it so that Jewish enrollment is only religious Jews. And a high portion of Jews are not religious. They say about um, 38% are not religious. So, for example, at Harvard, they now claim there's only an 11% enrollment of Jews. That was before um, the, uh, um, no, after the definition change. Uh, before the definition change, there were 25% um, students who were Jewish at Harvard. So, just like that, they were able to change it. Um, and also, what they um, are covering up is that in the past, it may have been true that um, Jewish enrollment was based more on academic merit, but in the last 10 years, there's been a dramatic decline in Jewish academic achievement. Today, only about 6% of all top academic students are Jewish. So their 1,000% um, advantage um, is just unfair and beyond the pale. And this had uh, this dangerous information had to be either hidden and or changed, and both is what happened. And this kind of takeover of the most powerful and uh, most desirable positions in a society through ethnic nepotism happened in Germany. And that was one of the reasons why this Jew hatred spread and led to the uh, the rise of, of Nazism. So it's it's not, you know, I think Jewish people should reflect on this and understand the perspective of their critics and not just take this sort of one-dimensional uh, knee-jerk line of attacking anti-Semitism and, and pushing for more and more Jewish power and more and more Jewish power through more and more ethnic nepotism and bullying and silencing their opponents. That's just going to ultimately boomerang. So let's let's all be reasonable here and have an honest discussion about this. And we're not going to have one, though, with the ADL. In our next slide, uh, we see that ADL now says that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are pretty much the same. They both lead to violence. And so anybody who doesn't like Israel, such as Jewish Voice for Peace, the Council on American-Islamic Relations and Students for Justice in Palestine, these are all evil anti-Semites who all need to be silenced. Oh, boy. Yeah, again, the scares about waves of anti-Semitism. They're really running out of different ways to advertise their cash cow. So now they're floating anti-Semitism as uh, being anti-Zionism. Um, as if it's a whole new concept and category to go crying about. I wish the whole world would just watch the movie Defamation. The jig would be up and mm -hmm. people would see these cry wolf demands are in large part just fundraising scams. Okay, well, moving on to more anti-Semitism related news. There was a Holocaust this week, but it was a chicken Holocaust. 5.3 million chickens were roasted alive. Uh, that's slightly more than the number of Jews killed in the Holocaust, according to the founder of Holocaust Studies, Raul Hilberg, who said, I think it was, he thought 5.1 Jews died in the Holocaust. So he's an anti-Semite because he thinks it's less than 6 million. But these 5.3 million chickens who were actually roasted alive, which is a real Holocaust, uh, were taken out due to bird flu. And that's part of a whole uh, food Holocaust issue that we're seeing as in the next slide with BlackRock and Vanguard taking over food production. And as we saw last week, all kinds of food production facilities are having planes dive into them and fires are breaking out. A lot of folks are suggesting that there may be some kind of depopulation agenda at work here. What do you think, Ken? 
Well, especially when you consider there was only a single case of flu, and so five million chickens had to go, and there was only a single five point three million. Don't be a chicken holocaust denier, cat. <laughs> right. It, I mean, it something doesn't add up. You know, our food is being actively person purposefully um, shut down the whole food supply. Um, Ice Age Farmer calls it a controlled demolition of our food supply. Um, I'd like to bring awareness to in 2015, Big Ag Agriculture held a two-day simulation game on how the world would respond to a food crisis. And the simulation predicted that there'd be a 400% increase um, in food prices um, extreme weather conditions supposedly caused by climate. Yet this, the overthrow of Pakistan and Ukraine governments. This is what, the, is what they came up with in 2015. Um, riots, civil unrest and refugees. And their sole solution for this, if we were facing widespread famine, is charge a global tax. It's just like COVID. The sole, sole solution is vaccines as if nothing else works. And BlackRock sits at the very top of this, uh, of the food chain of the food famines and shortage because they control so much about um, the basics of our lives, including all of housing. And speaking of food shortages, uh, we're seeing one right now, even as we speak over in Shanghai. Uh, in the next story, uh, Shanghai's COVID lockdown has led, uh, quote unquote, the people uh, sealed inside fenced off residential compounds struggling for daily necessities. They've been Shanghai'd. Uh, and, and there are some real horror stories here, videos showing a local care home transferring an elderly person in a body bag to a mortuary, but the person was later found to be still alive. Uh, so we're getting horror stories out of China. How many are anti-Chinese propaganda pieces from the usual suspects and how much is real? I don't know, but it does look like there's a pretty nasty lockdown happening in Shanghai. And I think it even started this week in Beijing as well. Right. It's unprecedented human rights violation. 25 million people brutally locked down for more than a month. And now the authorities have begun to weld up entrances with metal bars so people can't escape. Um, China has this far-fetched fantasy of zero COVID. I mean, it's such an impossibility. They yeah, what, what's that about with Omicron? What's the zero COVID thing? I don't get it. Yeah, it, it's, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, they act like it's the Black Plague. Um, well, well, last night, uh, Thaddeus Kaczynski suggested that maybe China is deliberately cutting off the supply chain to harm the West. What do you think? That could very well be because one in five shipping containers in the world are now backed up in China due to the lockdowns. So that's 20 percent of the world's supply um, of junk you buy at Walmart. Well, also food. Um, so the, the whole Shanghai lockdown does not add up. Um, so it could be that um, they're using uh, COVID as a cover for doing their own sanctions on the U.S. Um, with this lockdown, um, maybe, you know, keep us from getting what we need. Um, so or, or um, they're preparing to invade a hobbled Taiwan because Taiwan will be just as cut off from supplies. Um, and, and simultaneously, because I do believe China is part of the whole World Economic Forum uh uh, global coup d'etat, um, their whole new lockdown template can simultaneously um, be the showcase template of what's to come for the West as well. Well, Kat, I'm sure glad I'm not in China and I'm, I'm here in the free world. Uh, and here in the free world, the way that we uh, enforce COVID discipline is not through draconian lockdowns. Well, not most of the time anyway. We just fine people 50 bucks 
a week or a day, 50 bucks a month. Oh, that's not so bad uh, for refusing the COVID vaccine and then double their taxes. So that's coercion, but at least they're not welding the bars on your door. No, they only make you get three licensed physicians to sign an exemption. Um, 95% of um, Rhode Islanders are vaccinated. They have one of the highest rates in the country. So what do they need this law for? Uh, it's just government overreached, pushed through by ill-informed, Karen-crazy politicians. And the guy who, the state senator who put this forward, his name is Samuel Bell, um, and he's a major supporter of LGBTQXYZ. He has a PhD in astronomy and planetary science. Will someone ring Samuel Bell's bell and call this educated fool back to Earth? <laughs> okay. Uh, so speaking of weird people who get elected, uh, how about Donald Trump? Well, Donald's not weird. He's, he's just, he's just Donald. Anyway, did he break the law when he tried to pressure Georgia officials to flip the election, they may be indicting him anytime soon. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis is mulling indicting Trump. So do you think Trump's going to end up behind bars or will he get, end up back in the White House or, or both? Maybe they'll install bars on the White House for him. This whole trope and story is such a lie. What should be getting the press is the 2,000 mules that shows industrial-sized criminal operations. Once again, showing tonight. Thank you. But I actually know about this finding votes phone call from the time that it was happening. I investigated it thoroughly. And it was not like Trump was asking um, Raffensperger, who's the Georgia Secretary of State, to somehow smoke out illegal votes and steal them his way. They were absolutely votes that had been wrongfully put in Biden's count, but were clearly for Trump. And the votes were retabulated and they were just sitting there waiting to be authorized for release. So when Trump said find votes, it was specifically to go after those votes that were known to be legally his that had not yet been counted. So Trump sincerely believed that the election was stolen from him. And I don't think that's a doubt. Any, there's no doubt that he really believed that. Whether he believed that because he's a psychotic narcissist or because he was right or both A and B, and I think the correct answer is both A and B, or at least very well might be, uh, who knows? Anyway, watch the documentary tonight, 2000 Mules. What's that, 2000mules.com, Kat? Yes. Yeah, at 8 o'clock Eastern, you said? Yes. Okay, sounds good. People can make up their own minds. Uh, that's the uh, pro-election theft case at 2000mules.com at 8 p.m. Eastern. Okay, moving on to uh, Diane Feinstein. She's giving Joe Biden a run for his money in the most obviously senile politician sweepstakes, isn't she? Yeah, it's not just her. It's Biden, Nancy Pelosi. We're a gerontocracy, every bit as bad as the Soviets were. Like when Bre they we're bringing on Brezhnev. Why don't they dig up the corpse of Brezhnev and, and put him in the White House? <laughs> right. It's just... Their era came to an end when they got these gerontocracy uh, uh, people running things. I don't want to see age limits, but there are many high-functioning uh, seniors, um, and so we don't need age um, limits. But this is a national security problem, and it's not just the hubris of these individual politicians. The DNC is complicit because they just want to hold those seats for as long as they can. It's elder abuse, and people like Jill Biden should be ashamed um, that she is putting her husband through this. She smiles with cheery vacuity, but um, it's a disgrace what her collusion is doing to her husband. We could just move the whole government to the Capitol Hill care home uh, and be done with it. <laughs> uh, so moving on to neoliberal privatization watch, the private Medicare plans denied one in five claims that should have been paid. Uh, isn't neoliberal privatization of everything wonderful? Uh, 
I'm on Medicare and there are so few doctors willing to see me because they don't want to deal with Medicare and all of its bureaucracy. I'm grateful to be healthy. Um, I don't think many people know that one of the reasons Medicare has become such a bureaucratic tangle is because um, there was so much um, theft and uh, scamming and corruption by a particular demographic who specializes in scamming um, and finding. Yeah, that would um, be the same demographic that famously had an ethnic uh, Ivy League cheating ring run by somebody named Kaplan. There's a Kap Kaplan educational dynasty that eventually ended up with Kaplan University, where I taught for a while, that began with a cheating ring where the Kaplan, some Kaplan guy would steal uh, old tests or get his hands on old tests that students weren't supposed to have ever seen and copy them and distribute them to the members of his ethnic group. And, uh, but that's, that relates to Ron Unza's story. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. And we certainly wouldn't want to identify the ethnic group lest we'd be accused of something that the ADL wouldn't like. So, uh, moving on to the issue of solutions to all of these terrible, terrible problems. Uh, one is renewable energy. California hit a hundred percent powered by renewable this week. Uh, the bad news is that they're still counting biomass as renewable, which is disgusting. It's actually worse than fossil fuel for the most part, but that's only a small percentage of their renewables. So I guess that's good. And over in Mexico, they're also uh, pitching renewables. The right-wing opposition party, PAN, a bunch of fascists supported by the uh, corporatocracy and the neoliberals, is actually pitching free solar panels for housing. So both the parties in Mexico are socialist now and pushing uh, renewables, and the right wing is even doing it more than left wing. So, hey, left is right, right is left, up is down, down is up, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. The world is going to hell in a proverbial handbasket, and I can hardly keep up with it. I totally agree. This Green New Deal, like the Paris Accords, it's all a, ultimately a financial boondoggle for the wealthy. Um, I just don't believe any of it anymore. Okay, well, I don't believe any of the Ukraine propaganda either, including that exposing your thong underwear by wearing it on the outside is going to somehow help the Ukrainian cause. But that's what this uh, Bella Abzug or whatever, uh, Bella Hadid, or I don't, I don't know, my Bellas. <laughs> uh, so that's a stupid story that you didn't want to comment on, Kat. So let's move on to our final story, which is another stupid story uh, that you did want to comment on, which is the Mexican couple that had the Nazi-themed wedding. Uh, Kat, what's your comment on the Nazi-themed wedding in Mexico? My guess is that it's an ADL stunt so that they can barge their way into Mexico and demand the entire population undergo massive re-education <laughs> to thoroughly eliminate any more dangerous thought crimes. There you go. Well, one thing I can say about this uh, wonderful neo-Nazi wedding was that the amazing Adolf and Eva wedding cake was baked by the Right Sector Bakery from Kiev. Security was provided by the Azov Battalion. And for music, the one and only Vladimir Zelensky pounded the piano with his p -p -p pinky. <laughs> okay, that's it for False Flag Weekly News. Thank you so much, Kat McGuire. It's always fun doing the show. Thanks to our viewers and supporters, and see you all next week. Okay, bye. Thanks, Kevin.